Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. And we're in studio. You don't have COVID. I'm in the country. It's, uh, it's all good. I don't have COVID. I did get a terrible sunburn yesterday, Ben. That's the elephant in the room Is right that now. what's happening on your forehead? I, I got torched sitting outside at a lunch. Yeah, that's torched. not never good. I mean, it's a higher risk for me with no hair, but... Uh, I also not, got the sunglasses one. So like right here and like sort of um, between my eyes, upper nose yeah. is pale. Yeah. But the schnoz itself looks <laughs> yeah, like I've been yeah, drinking yeah, with yeah. Boris Johnson for yeah. 48 hours. Well, that, that's a good excuse, sunburn. You know? <laughs> anyway, I'm glad to be healthy. It's good to see you in studio. Yes. Um, we got a lot of news today. We're going to cover the latest from Ukraine. Uh, there's money and weapons flown from the US. The first lady visited Ukraine. Vladimir Putin gave an underwhelming speech, yeah. I kind of think. Yeah. Uh, and we got Intel leaks galore. Then we're going to cover a historic election in Ireland, some scandalous scandals in the UK, protests and violence in Sri Lanka, the very depressing election results in the Philippines. Uh, the CIA has a message for Brazil, and then more Trump officials write books. Lastly, there's a little something I want to try with you, Ben, that I was calling like the, the beat sweetener round of applause. Yeah. <laughs> more on that later. And then, Ben, you did this week's interview. Uh, what do we got here? Yeah, this is a good one. Uh, Big shot U.S. Yeah, officials here. Yeah, Wally Adeyemo, who's the... Uh, Deputy Treasury Secretary, one of the most important people that you might not know about. Um, and he's also kind of in charge of the accounts that we follow on this show, mm-hmm. National Security, particularly Ukraine. So he really walks us through what they're trying to do with sanctions, what more they can do, um, what the knock-on secondary effects are. We talk about things like the global wheat crisis mm. um, and how they're trying to backfill uh, things that have been uh, undercut by sanctions. We talk about kleptocracy and how this could, could hopefully be a first step towards more aggressive action against that. So we we cover the, the landscape with Wally. It's really nice. Good. People yeah. love that guy. He's good. He's like I said to you, he's like one of these people who's like incredibly smart, but is able to explain things like a human. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you want, if you Always want uh, an explainer on all these economic aspects of the war in Ukraine and all the ripple effects, uh, check it out. That is a cool job. Deputy Treasury Secretary, you're in charge of so much stuff and your boss is just like dealing with the economy or whatever. So you get all the cool national <laughs> yeah, security yeah, stuff yeah. and the yeah, meetings. Exactly. Like, yeah, you're in everything. Um, two quick things. Uh, next month, Ben, uh, Pod Save America is back on tour. Going to New York and LA. Folks who want to get tickets or more information, go to crooked.com slash events. Far more importantly, uh, we've all probably seen by now that the Supreme Court appears to be attempting to eradicate abortion rights in this country. We here at Crooked are trying to fight back. If you go to votesaveamerica.com slash row, R-O-E, you can donate. We'll split your contribution between more than 80 abortion funds. And for more analysis on upcoming Supreme Court decisions, check out the Strict Scrutiny podcast every Tuesday or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, their emergency episode on the leaked ruling was incredible, and I highly recommend it. Um, ben, word on the street is your book is coming out in paperback. Do you think your sales can top Megan McCain's? I mean, we could set the bar like a little bit higher. 287 um, copies. Uh, yeah, I don't know if I could I could evoke the same passion from 
Steve Schmidt. Steve Schmidt, Twitter. Th- <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> like 48 hours straight. I, I The book is out in paperback on May 24th. Um, I desperately want all of you who haven't purchased it to check it out. Yeah, it is it now in the price range. When I was the age of many listeners of this podcast, I waited for the paperback. So I, I hope that's what some of you guys have been doing. But Primer, again, I know people have heard about it, but after the fall, one of the reasons I want people to check it out is it, it kind of is my backstory to most of the stuff we talk on the show about. I'm really trying to break down the rise of authoritarianism around the world. And I look at Viktor Orban, um, who since uh, I wrote this book mm-hmm. has only further consolidated his own control over Hungary while further serving as uh, the model for the American Republican Party. And that's that's what I talk about in my book. Uh, I talk about Putin and Ukraine and Russia, how we got here, why Ukraine is so central to Putin, uh, why it's kind of the logical endpoint of what Putin's been up to for 20 years. Uh, and I, uh, Alexei Navalny is one of my main characters, and he's obviously now been sentenced to additional time in, in mm-hmm. Russian prison. Then I have China and the Hong Kong flavor. And uh, tragically, Hong Kong has been kind of swallowed up since this uh, book came out. Uh, and I talk about the United States and um, how kind of tenuous our democracy is. And so I say all that because um, if you want a backstory about how we got here, <laughs> how the world got so fucked up. Um, that was what I set out to write. Um, unfortunately, uh, I think the trend lines that I'm wrestling with in the book have only continued. In some cases, have gotten more extreme. Um, but I, I really hope people pick it up. Um, we gotta gotta represent on that paperback bestseller yeah, list yeah. now, right? Um, beat all the McCain family. All the <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and. Uh, uh, and yeah, hopefully I'll be able to see some of you guys at an event. Oh, that'd be it's fun. Great. It's great. Yes. Yeah, it's hitting good. the road. Yeah, hitting the road. That's oh, I love hitting the road. I was trapped in my house for two weeks. Hitting if, the road feels good. If you've read it, you can recommend it. There you, you know, go. Tweet uh, about it. Check it. It's Father's Day coming up. Ooh, Nothing like a little authoritarianism reading around there Father's you Day. You know, <laughs> for your autocrat dad. <laughs> yeah. Here's a little plug for me for the video team. Check out my YouTube show. Tommy gets red pilled. We did an episode on woke Disney. There may have been a, a blue phallus, depending on what you saw. We did uh, we did Putin, his rhetoric, why Republicans love him. End of plug. So Kirkin.com, I, I, I watched uh, I watched one recently that was <laughs> like some guy who was saying that um, it was like Mickey and Minnie were like dancing and he, he's claimed was a penis. And, yep. and it that guy's running for Congress. That like guy's I, running for office. Yeah. 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 Go to our YouTube, the Crooked Media YouTube. I said Crooked.com. That's the wrong plug. I plugged my own yeah. show wrong. Yeah. That's embarrassing. Anyway, lots of stuff going on. Uh, I want to talk Ukraine. Let's do it. All right. Lots of updates since last week. So on Monday, President Biden signed into law a bill that will make it easier for him to expedite weapons shipments to Ukraine. It's called the Ukraine Democracy Defense Lend-Lease Act of 2022, passed unanimously in the Senate, 417 to 10 in the House. The 10 no votes were all the right-wing Republicans you'd expect. The law builds on the concept that President Roosevelt used to help allied countries in World War II, and that is separate and apart from the $33 billion that Biden requested in funding. Uh, Biden also lifted Trump-era tariffs on Ukrainian steel to help their economy, and leaders of the G7 pledged to phase out Russian oil during a virtual meeting over the weekend. Uh, But a new package of European sanctions is being held up by concerns from Hungary and Slovakia. Again, Ben, very surprised to hear that Viktor Orban would run interference for Putin. No, what a shocker. Such a good guy, yeah. yeah. On Mother's Day, uh, First Lady Jill Biden made a secret visit to Ukraine where she met with uh, Olena Zelenska, uh, the First Lady of Ukraine, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, and Bono and The Edge also visited Ukraine I over saw the weekend. That. So. <laughs> with or without you in the key <laughs> metro, it's a little weird. <laughs> Busy week. I'm not sure that's what I would pick. 
Um, if you had the whole YouTube catalog, would you do with or without mm, you in the, in the key? Bloody metro? Sunday. Yeah, 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 a lot of kind of dark options. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know who else was there, though? A group of American diplomats returned to Kiev. Uh, they're planning to reopen the U.S. Embassy in the next few weeks. Um, so, Ben, uh, you know, a lot of stuff there. Do you think there's like an NSC Greatest Hits album down in the Situation Room and somebody <laughs> threw on the Lend Lease track? Like, how did we get there? Well, it's usually a Marshall plan. I mean, <laughs> yes. I don't know how many times in the last 20 years I've heard, like, we need a Marshall plan for That's this. Right, right, you know? for everything. Um, so I guess we need a Lend Lease. Uh, look, um, it, it, you know, and the 33 billion swelled to 40 billion, right? And, 6.8 billion more from yeah, Congress. And then uh, Biden said he would decouple it from the COVID funding that they were asking for. And uh, here's like, I want to throw up a red flag here. <laughs> it's something mm. that's concerning me. Please do. Because I support providing this assistance to Ukraine. And as we talked about last week, we're in like a long haul. I think that's clear from where we are. And so this kind of funding allows you to plan you know, over the next six months. And it's crazy that it's only six months, but that's that's what it is. I think what I see that concerns me is both in terms of American foreign policy and in Congress itself, the war in Ukraine is so big that I'm a little worried that it, it, is anything else happening, right? So yeah, me too. just in terms of the funding, this money, to put it in perspective, is more than like we spend on on fighting climate change around the world. You know, it's 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 more than the State Department's budget. You know, in yeah. some years, or it's about about the same. And 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 again, that may be necessary, but the fact that they're already like trading out the COVID funding, right, and saying, oh, this this critical few billion dollars that could help save a lot of lives in this country, you know, we, we can't possibly wait to to spend this money on arms. And then you see the reporting that. Well, maybe they're not going to do the Iran deal because they don't want to take on the political fight of uh, getting rid of the Trump era sanctions entirely. Um, it, it does just kind of feel like we're really all in on this thing. And, and, and again, I think that's justifiable in a lot of ways, but you kind of have to walk and chew gum. Like mm -hmm. we have to keep fighting the pandemic. We have to keep yes. fighting climate. We like, And so I think, you know, Having been in government myself, I know how much you can get totally overwhelmed with something for a couple months, but you also can't like really take your eye off the other stuff. And for Congress, they're the laziest branch of government, right? Because the executive branch actually has do, to work. They work three government. days a week. So they, they come in, they're like, okay, all we have to do is pass a bunch of money for Ukraine. Uh, we can deal with like the pandemic later, right? Mm -hmm. um, that to me is like, I worry that this kind of is taking over everything else, you know. It, Biden asked for 33 billion. Congress is working on a 40 billion dollar aid package. Yeah. If that passes, it'll be it'll put total money for Ukraine over 50 billion. Yeah. And like you said, they were going to try to couple this with the COVID aid, but the Democrats got scared because they didn't want to get forced to vote on Title 42, which is that Trump era provision being used to deny all asylum requests at the border. So they split it. But again, yeah, like you said, like we're going to shovel money out the door to buy weapons and not buy therapeutics, yeah, testing, exactly. vaccines as we head into another COVID surge? Are, are you crazy? Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, you know, you're in a weird place in Washington when uh, I, I thankfully don't watch the Sunday shows, but 
when the Lockheed Martin CEO is I, on, on yeah, Meet the I Press. I can't believe I mean, that just, happens. For those who don't follow us that closely, Lockheed Martin is one of the biggest arms producers in the world. And like when, when that guy feels like he can crawl out from behind the rock and, and have like a big public profile, like it, the, the, the military like industrial he, complex yeah. is on <laughs> TV. <laughs> the military industrial complex is literally on television. On CBS. It, it, it's, it's kind of an unsubtle marker of where we are at, you know? Yeah. And it, you know, our democracy may be slipping away. Like a lot of stuff is tenuous or a lot of plates spinning in the air but like the Lockheed guy you, you texted you know. that to me on Sunday and I was like are you is this a joke did you like mock yeah. this up on well and Photoshop? like 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 wars happen and who's making a lot of money right now oral companies and arms dealers and mm-hmm. and uh I, I just like let's just try to get some funding for clean energy and pandemics too you know? yeah I think the uh those things didn't go away I know? think the world hit a record for the most carbon in the atmosphere in history at recently. the same time that people are like yeah. well we better start drilling and we right. better start you know yeah. Yeah. so let's try to channel this energy into the clean energy transition that denies people like Putin the money they actually use there we go anyway uh so the the first lady's visit to Ukraine was interesting it was powerful here's my question for you if the first lady visits Ukraine or can safely visit Ukraine do we think that increases pressure on Biden to go? I mean, obviously, she was in far western Ukraine. I think she was like a couple miles over the Slovakian border. But I don't know. If Biden went, he'd probably want to visit Kiev. He'd probably want to see Zelensky in person. That ups the ante a little bit. But again, if, if Bono and the Edge can make it to the subway, <laughs> yeah. like I don't know. What do you think that means for Joe? I, I think that like, so what is the value of this? Um, I mean, symbolism, I guess. yeah, well, there's more than that in some ways, I think. First of all, the symbolism is important. It, it, it It's expressing solidarity. Uh, the fact that the first lady of Ukraine, who's been in hiding, like That's we have true. not seen her beyond kind of social media, that she can, came out. I think that shows how important it is to them that, that, that people are in their corner. I think more fundamentally, you mentioned that the U.S. diplomats going back, and it's only a handful right now, but- kind of normalizing that Kiev is the capital, that Russia does not control this country. Mm-hmm. Like that's the the actual substantive yeah. value and the kind of drawing a marker that you have failed to conquer Kiev, you failed to dislodge this government. We're dealing with them through normal business. And, you know, that's just a new norm. Now, the flip side of that is that the Russians can fire missiles at Kiev whenever they want. So the Secretary General of the United Nations is there and they lob those missiles in. I, I'm sure from having dealt with the Secret Service myself on things like Obama visiting Afghanistan, their answer is going to be no, right? There would be and, hell no. Yeah, yeah. And so you would have to overrule the Secret Service to do this. And that happens, by the way. I mean, they they didn't weren't particularly thrilled about Obama's visits to Afghanistan. They made them work uh, when they were told that you know he wanted to do it. Um, so I, th- I think it does... Like, but the thing is, you want to be sure that you're going for a reason other than just going, yeah. right? Like, I, I think a big that, risk. Yeah, I think the, the thought has to be like, this is a part of some plan. Like, we are going to make some particular announcement while we're there, or there's something that we want to get done in terms of a piece of business that comes out of this that's beyond just what we say. Because um, again, this is going to be around for a while. This war, uh, you know, that's. All indications of the last few weeks is that this is heading for a more protracted phase. And so I think that it, the visit is the kind of thing that you do when you have a very particular point you want to make, um, mm-hmm. if you're going to take on all that risk. Yeah. You fly with like a Patriot missile battery with you. Like, I don't know. I, I can't. I, yeah. I it's mean, like it's risky. Visit. You know, um, you'd have to do it secretly. It'd be hard to do in Kiev. You might, but I noticed that Jill Biden, it was not in Lviv either. It was in kind of a town in Eastern Ukraine. It was a tiny little village. But the reality is that 
the nature of intelligence is I don't know how you could keep it secret from the Russians either. Right. So you're basically banking on the fact that the Russians won't try to like decapitate yeah, the, yeah, US, yeah. the US government. And, and I think that's a pretty, I'd like to say that's a safe bet, um, but I'm sure that they're their voices in the service. Yeah. Kamala's going to nuke your ass, yeah, Vlad. Yeah, yeah. Don't do it. Yeah, exactly. Um, speaking of intelligence, Ben, there's been a bunch of stories over the last week or so about U.S. intelligence sharing with Ukraine. Uh, it started with the New York Times running a piece with the headline, U.S. intelligence is helping Ukraine kill Russian generals, officials say. Uh, to me, that headline felt a little bit hyped. The White House pushed back on it pretty hard. What it sounds like is happening here is the U.S. is providing Ukraine with intelligence on Russian troop movements. The Ukrainians use that information to attack Russian units. In the process, they have killed a bunch of Russian senior leaders who are on the front lines because the Russian military structure is stupid, for lack of a better term. But it's not like we're not like, hey, like uh, uh, General War Crimesovich is like in this village, like yeah. fucking drone yeah. his ass. Um, but, you know, that story opened the floodgates. There's now reports that U.S. intelligence was used to target and sink the Moskva, the Russian ship that went down a few weeks ago. The White House then leaked that Biden called some national security officials and yelled at them about leaks. Always fun. So it's never good when there's a leak about the dressing down that people got over the leaks. Never good. Yeah. Been there, done that. Yeah. So, like, I feel for the White House here because a few weeks ago, months ago, they were getting yelled at in the press for not sharing enough intelligence. Clearly, those reports at the time were wrong, but I did wince when I read the stories and worry about Putin reading something that he might decide warrants retaliation. I don't know. How worried were you when you saw some of these reports? Well, I, I think, first of all, on the substance of it, none of it is particularly surprising, right? I mean, when you look at the performance of the Ukrainian military, first of all, let's be clear in terms of killing Russians. Like, the Ukrainian military has been trained by the United States since 2014. Um, it's been heavily armed by yeah. NATO and the United States in particular. Um, so... At a minimum, like we are supporting the military that is targeting Russians, killing Russians. And then when you looked at their performance, um, you know, they, they clearly had tremendous insight into what the Russians were doing. And frankly, some of that intelligence we were releasing publicly. But I mean, I don't think it's a surprise to anybody that we're sharing this information. I think what happens in any White House is there's a drumbeat of people on the outside demanding that you do things that you are already doing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like that happened. <laughs> totally. There wasn't like a day I was working in the White House that there wasn't some issue where the, there's a demand for something that the U.S. wasn't quietly doing. It's right? exhausting. And so you get a lot of people in there who feel like they have some reason to put this out. And yeah, on the general question, it comes out sideways because we may say like there are Russian military units here and here's where they are. We don't necessarily know that the Russians are moving their generals up to the front lines like that. And, and so you could see how that kind of came out sideways. I have to think that Putin is generally aware and already suspects that the United States is doing all the things that we've seen in these leaks. However, in a world in which, whether it's silly or not, optics kind of matter, um, it puts him more on the spot when all that stuff is being publicly yeah. revealed, right? So even if he already thought we were doing it, I do think that there's an escalation risk if he feels like we're kind of rubbing his face in it. Yeah, or, the humiliation. Yeah, that he needs to do something back to save face. Um, so yeah, it, it it highlights the kind of tightrope we're on where we actually probably are more into this war than people know. Mm -hmm. I mean, I you and I have speculated here what kind of training might be going on. Right, what's you for know? CIA? Yeah, like we do. have no idea, to be clear. Um, but like that stuff inevitably comes out. It always comes out. Um, 
and and you know that that over time is going to kind of create this increasing friction obviously with russia yes it will um last ukraine thing so a lot of folks were watching to see what happened on may 9th during the victory day celebrations in russia that's when they commemorate the soviet union's victory over the nazis in world war ii 27 million soviet people died in that fight and again, it's important to, to clarify, not Russian, but Soviets, because that includes Ukraine and other countries. I would say the speech was underwhelming, like Putin trotted out a lot of the same rhetoric. It's a fight against Nazis. He said he's preempting some sort of NATO attack. He said that Ukraine is planning to build nuclear weapons. But he did not officially declare war on Ukraine. He didn't mobilize more troops for the fight. Those two actions would have been a big deal, it would have increased uh, Russia's military capability. Um, one interesting thing I saw, Ben, was there were supposed to be scheduled flyovers of military aircraft. That got canceled at a bunch of these events. They said it was bad weather. There was <laughs> there was not bad weather. You could see the weather. Um, I wonder if they're paranoid <laughs> about like the, the Russian, the, the Ukrainian opposition shooting down a plane or something like could have been interesting. Anyway, or they need the planes in Ukraine because they're so short. You know, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah. That's a very good point. Um, the Washington Post reported that people in Ukraine were kind of relieved on, on Victory Day. There was less shelling in eastern Ukraine than usual. Zelensky released a far more compelling five-minute video. It was him delivering remarks to camera as he walked down a street in Kiev talking about Ukraine's sacrifice in World War II. And he said Putin was following Nazi philosophy and that, quote, soon there will be two victory days in Ukraine and someone will not even have one left. Yeah. Guy's got good pretty lines. good shade. Pretty good shade. Um, what'd you make of the contrast to these two speeches? Well, first of all, you know the Putin speech was interesting, and I think it was a bit of a tell. The couple of things people thought he might do in advance. One was this idea of a mass mobilization, calling up all these conscripts, right? Essentially, a mass draft. There was some real risk in that for Putin, though. That that could stir up public opinion, uh, concentrating a bunch of poorly trained, under-equipped people. And giving them weapons, mm-hmm. you know, can can be the scenario that can lead to That's some right, instability, a right? Yeah. Um, a little uprising. So he maybe wanted to avoid that. But then the other scenario is that was he going to kind of declare victory and say there was all this push in Mariupol, and was he going to say like essentially we won, which could have been an effort to kind of freeze the conflict. Um, so in some ways, it's bad news he didn't try to do that because um, it indicates that he wouldn't be satisfied declaring victory with the parts of the Donbass and eastern Ukraine and whatever parts of Mariupol are left that he controls. And, and you've seen even in the days, well, the day or two since, they've been moving more against Odessa, mm-hmm. which as we talked about, if you look at southern Ukraine um, from east to west, you have Mariupol and then Odessa. And then the next kind of lily pad is Transnistria, that breakaway part of Moldova, right? And so- the absence of him declaring victory kind of seems to suggest that they're going to keep grinding it out in the Donbass and in southern Ukraine so that when they might try to declare victory, they just occupy more territory or have at least, you know, uh, depopulated tragically more territory. So that that's not great. And, and Avril Haines, the director of national intelligence, testified somewhat to that effect, mm-hmm. that they don't see – they see Putin as still having greater aims yeah. than what he currently – has and and so all the signs unfortunately point to a Putin who's been weakened and who can't you know it's hard for him to dress up uh, what has clearly been uh, an underwhelming performance thus far but not a Putin that looks like he's looking for an off ramp. You know? did, did you see Avril taking questions? Avril Haines, of, Tommy Tuberville. Yeah, yeah. He's like, can Putin stop the run? He's like, yeah, guy's yeah. just a fucking, <laughs> he's a fucking idiot. Yeah, unbelievable yeah, idiot. Yeah, it was like one of these great first lines. Their intel person was like. Can you can you tell us whether or not Russia 
tracks what our, our Secretary of Defense is doing. And she's like, yeah, they, they track all our senior yeah, officials. Yeah, they got <laughs> nytimes.com yeah, 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 over yeah. there. <laughs> what are you talking about? They got C-SPAN. Um, all, last dude, also notable, Ben, in Poland, protesters threw red paint on the Russian ambassador. Yes. Tough day for that guy. Mirroring what they, the Russian goons did uh, to their anti-war critics. At yeah, home, so. yeah. And then uh, the programming guides of a number of big Russian TV providers were hacked on Victory Day to say, when you try to figure out like what time Dynasty was on or whatever, it said, blood of thousands of Ukrainians and hundreds of their murdered children were on the viewers' hands. So That's clever. Compelling hack. Yeah, that's a good Compelling hack. hack. Yeah. Um, okay, that is it for our Ukraine section. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about a major election in Ireland. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. All right, we're back uh, and we're going to talk about Northern Ireland because there's a pretty historic election in Northern Ireland last week. Uh, Sinn Féin political party won 27 seats in the Northern Ireland Assembly. Their main rival, the Democratic Unionist Party, or DUP, won 24 seats. So it's a big deal because that means there's a nationalist majority in Northern Ireland for the first time in decades. Uh, and there could be the first ever nationalist first minister of Northern Ireland. But the process for making that happen is complicated. Getting from election to government is complicated. I'll explain why in a second. Just some quick background first, though, Ben. Um, Sinn Féin is a primarily Catholic left-wing party that wants Ireland to be united and independent from Britain. Sinn Féin has ties to the IRA, historically speaking. It's a paramilitary terrorist group. But over the years, they've transitioned from you know, guns to government, is what they always say. Uh, the DUP is mostly Protestant. It wants Britain to remain part of the UK. The 1998 Good Friday Agreement created a set of institutions and power-sharing arrangements in Northern Ireland that ended decades of sectarian warfare between the two sides, called the Troubles. End of background. So uh, now these various political parties have to try to come together after this election over the weekend and negotiate a power sharing agreement. If they can't come to an agreement in six months, they have to call a new election, or they may have to call a new election. Brexit is the elephant in the room here. To get Brexit done, Boris Johnson created something called the Northern Ireland Protocol, which puts these customs checks on goods that come into Northern Ireland from mainland Britain. That pissed off the DUP uh, and other unionist parties who say, hey, these customs checks divide them from the rest of the UK. We want to be united with UK. Uh, and the DUP says they won't be part of a coalition government unless the Northern Ireland Protocol custom checks are scrapped. But for that to happen, 
Boris Johnson would have to have some political courage. He would have to take on the European Union. Doesn't seem like he wants to do that. So the long and short of it is things are are up in the air at the moment. Uh, the DUP lost votes to a more hardline unionist party, another party called the Crossed Community Alliance uh, that doesn't define itself as nationalist or unionist made big gains in the election, which could be a sign that there's a growing group of people that want to move on from this like sort of old yeah. school sectarian fighting. Some people are saying it might be time to rethink all of these power sharing agreements that came uh, up as part of the Good Friday Agreement to reflect demographic changes because there's a lot more Catholics now than there used to be. We'll see. But Ben, Brexit... Yeah. is the gift that keeps on giving. That's my takeaway. Yeah, I, I was going to start there too. I mean, because first of all, it's kind of huge milestone that Sinn Féin is the biggest vote getter yeah. <laughs> in an election in Northern Ireland. Um, and like you said, they've come a long way from the IRA days. They've been a you know peaceful political actor for a long time since uh, obviously since at least the Good Friday Accords. Um, the Brexit point. So, you know, Brexit created an unsolvable problem, which is... If you put a kind of hard border between Northern Ireland and the rest of Ireland, you really stir the pot in in Northern Ireland amongst mm-hmm. the people that liked the fact that, you know, you had this kind of soft integration uh, between Ireland and Europe and mm-hmm. Northern Ireland. So avoiding that, you put the, you put the customs line between At the ports. Britain and, yeah. uh, and Northern Ireland, then you're pissing off the DUP and, and probably pissing off. Everybody in Northern Ireland is somewhat pissed about Brexit. They can't get sausage. Huge majority. They right? all want the British sausage. Give the guys their, their food. The the bottom line is like if the Brexit argument, one of it was like this is going to be a better deal essentially for the United Kingdom. Like it, it, you can see how much the United Kingdom itself is at risk. Scottish nationalism has gone up again mm-hmm. since the uh, since Brexit. Now you have like a a, a party that wants a united Ireland uh, as the leading party, uh, and who are doing well in in the Republic of Ireland and doing too. Well, yeah, doing yeah, they're well on track too. to win a majority there. Yeah, in the next few years. So this is like all on the table, you know, and and we can act like it's not, but I mean, I the 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 future of the United Kingdom is is very much on the table in the next ten or twenty mm-hmm. years, right? And 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 that may seem like a long time, but it's not in the context of how long there's been the United Kingdom. Right. And that both Scotland and Northern Ireland, suddenly you have these questions that had been somewhat managed uh, before Brexit. Yeah. Well, congratulations, Boris Johnson and uh, Nigel Farage and all you English nationalists. Uh, you, you may have just completely screwed the unity of your country going forward. Yeah, good work. I think the one question that I have in Northern Ireland is, I'm talking to some people there. There's a lot going on here. So some of this is the old conflicts about core identity. But there also generationally, I think, are some people who are like, and you mentioned this, but like, I'd rather just have like a politics that solves my problems in Northern Ireland, you know, rather than fighting about who's Catholic and Protestant or, you know, rather than fighting about, you know, uh, England and Ireland. Like, it's also a place that, you know, could use good governance and economic growth. And um, and so I think there's an opening, too, for some people to just kind of put themselves forward as trying to move beyond these sectarian differences um, in the politics in Northern Ireland. But that's hard to do when, you know, you have such a weighty history. Yeah. There's probably some young people that just like don't really care about like Jerry Adams' legacy. Yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah, I mean, speaking of Boris Johnson um, and him screwing the pooch, I mean, we've we've talked about his addiction to partying during the COVID-19 lockdowns. Had a lot of fun with that. But Ben, I need you to to dust off your Meet the Press t-shirt because this this scandal... It's now a Lockheed Martin t-shirt. It just got... This scandal, the party scandal just got both sides yeah, so you hear what happened here. Yeah. Labor leader Keir Starmer has been hammering Boris Johnson for his partying, but it turns out 
He was spotted drinking a beer as he ate takeout food during a campaign meeting in April of 2021. So was that some like labor party office? I guess there were like 15 people there after a day of campaigning, talking about whatever. They were eating Indian takeout. They were drinking a beer, standing up. I don't know. Was it a good idea? No. Was it a, a violation of the rules at the same level as like 15 birthday parties at number 10 while, you know, the queen sat alone at her husband's funeral? Yeah. No. Um, so, but because Keir Starmer is a, a self-flagellating liberal, and we always yeah. have to prove how fucking goody two-shoes we are and righteous and how much we love the rules. Starmer said he would resign if he's fined by police because he called on Boris Johnson to do so. Of course, Boris Johnson is not going to resign. But, uh, you know, Starmer also insists he did nothing wrong. So I don't know, Ben. It seems so clearly different than Boris throwing like hundreds of ragers at number 10 Downing Street. But here we are. Here we are. Now it's both sides. I, I just I'm astonished at the capacity of the inanity and stupidity of American politics to replicate itself constantly <laughs> in the United Kingdom. Uh, and it happens in both directions, I guess. But it's the same thing here where like Republicans can violate every fucking norm to the end point of like a violent insurrection where people are trying to hang the vice president of their own <laughs> yeah. party. Yeah. Um, and then like a Democrat will get like four Pinocchios from a fact checker. And it's like, oh, look, both oh. these parties are like- Susan Collins yeah. calls the cops because someone wrote in shock well, outside her house. Oh, that's the, a good the... example, right? Like, yeah, like that the, we're now self-flagellating about the people who wrote in chalk in front of Susan Collins's house as if that's like analogous to the insurrection. Or they like the inconvenienced Capitol, right? Alito. Yeah, I don't know what, why Keir Starmer felt compelled to, to play into the idea that there's any analogy between like, serial partying and lying about it relentlessly, too. I mean, that's to part of the idea, too, just yeah. constantly lying about it, lying about the parliament, lying about what you knew about, videotapes of people laughing <laughs> about how they were lying about it, you know? <laughs> right. And then this guy orders some fucking curry at, at like the office and it's like oh man I'll, I'll step down if like you know he does an IPA in 2021 and, and it's also so like one it's like playing into like the idea that these things are in all, at all analogous and it, Boris by the way didn't resign so, so the idea that labor might be lose its leader at a time when it had momentum because of some curry um, is insane because you know the British right wing media will be relentless, oh, right? Yes, yeah. Murdoch's gonna not gonna let this go because you're doing the right thing. No, here. all these tabloids and and then like to give it over to law enforcement, assuming that there may not be any bad actors in yeah. that chain of command. <laughs> Always upstanding. As someone who was in the White House when like it got delegated to James Comey to handle the Hillary Clinton matter, like it, that's not always like yeah. the right call. Go I with mean, God, Kira. Yeah. Ugh, not good. Uh, did you see that the the Queen Elizabeth II did not preside over the the opening of Parliament today? Uh, she the this so called Queen's speech uh, where you lay out the government's legislative agenda. She missed doing it for the first time since 1963 when I believe she was pregnant. Uh, Charles delivered it. The palace said she was having mobility problems. No surprise there at 96. But I don't know. I'm worried about it's this. I mean, another thing. You know, I hate to be ghoulish, but we. Yeah, I mean. Uh, like all signs point to the queen uh, not being in the best condition here. I can't believe she had COVID and was just okay. Maybe she was. I mean, yeah. you know, but the thing that people should check out here is that Charles gives his speech, and for some reason, they think it's a good idea for him to be like draped in so many medals, gold and medals, and there's like a crown next to him. And he's talking about the imperative of driving down the cost of living <laughs> and dealing with inflation. <laughs> and I'm like, dude, like, 
Gets, uh, can 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 somebody get some political advisors in Buckingham uh, Palace? I, 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 it's not us, but like, yeah, no, that's job one is like when you're giving a speech about inflation, don't be draped in gold next to a crown with jewels on it. Mark, Mark Landler had a funny line. I mean, it's a weird speech, right? Because it's a political speech prepared by number 10, like the State of the Union, but like the Queen or in this case, Charles gives it. But um, so it sets the agenda for the new parliament. But Mark noted that like last year you had the Queen of England talking about like the 5G build out across yeah. the like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, yeah. kind of weird stuff. <laughs> anyway. Um, okay. More dep- like uh, tone shift, more depressing story. <laughs> so scary developments in Sri Lanka this week uh, where eight people were died in clashes between pro and anti-government protesters. So the prime minister resigned. Protesters are calling on his brother, the president, President Rajapaksa, to do the same. Uh, instead, President Rajapaksa said, no, uh, the military and the police now have more power to detain and arrest you. And he put in place a curfew. So Sri Lanka has been having a very hard time. They've seen massive protests because of an economic crisis in the country that has created food shortages, rising prices, power blackouts. The the backstory is you know economic mismanagement over years and years and years, compounded by COVID and then just worse and worse economic conditions. Uh, The country has been kept afloat by assistance from India, some from China. They're belatedly asking for an IMF loan. Sri Lanka is like 22 million people in the country. You know, you look at the the major, not the cap, there's two capitals in Sri Lanka, apparently. One of them, Colombo, is like where most people live. It's like five, six million people. There's like burned out buses in the streets. There's fighting. A former minister's house was like burned to the ground. Um, The president's trying to form a unity government. That's why his brother... The PM says he resigned to sort of like create some space for, you know, an opposition leader to come in. Not looking like it's going to work. I don't know what else to say here, Ben. Pretty scary stuff. Well, this family, right? So like you had brothers who are president, prime minister. But th- that family has dominated Sri Lankan politics for the last 15, 20 years. And they're all over the place, too. There are other brothers mm-hmm. in different ministries. And they've been the autocratic flavor uh, in Sri Lanka they're more than likely on the take. Um, part of their economic mismanagement is going into these debt traps to China. Yep. They're like a central node in the Belt Road Initiative. So it's a pretty good sign that like China doesn't kind of come riding on a white horse to your assistance when, yeah. uh, when you need it. Um, and But I think the bottom line is like so long as this family essentially is trying to to cling to power, um, I understand why the opposition doesn't trust that. And unless there's a more comprehensive, small d democratic solution here via, like a, a you know a new election, um, it's hard to see how some window dressing unity government is going to paper over the fact that people are fed up with like having a essentially like ruling family in this country. Yeah. You know? Speaking of which, yeah. I mean, as we anticipated last week. Uh, Ferdinand Marcos Jr., the son of the late kleptocratic dictator by the same name, uh, won the Philippines presidential election in a landslide. He got about 30 million votes. His closest rival got around 14 million votes, which is an ass kicking. Sarah Duterte, the current president, uh, Rodrigo Duterte's daughter, also crushed her opponent in the race for vice president. So we've got the worst possible family dynasties joining force here in the Philippines, the Duterte family remember likes to indiscriminately kill people and then call it a drug war the marcos family likes uh, to steal from the people yeah, yeah they led a military dictatorship yeah. and stole billions um yeah i mean i think there's an anecdote in a piece in the post today about how when the marcos family uh, arrived in hawaii at customs in 1986 when they fled the country they had 
literally, you know, suitcases full of cash and gold and pearls and yeah. just like unbelievable. Um, so this is very depressing. But it's also, I mean, we should talk about this broader trend here, which is right wing governments across Southeast and East Asia are just taking hold. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot that's not great here. Uh, I mean, first of all, the, for the Marcos family to kind of rehabilitate itself this dramatically, um, you know, part of that is is the information environment. There's enormous disinformation in the Philippines and Facebook. If you want like kind of, you know, place one where Facebook has given the wrong people control over information, um, the Philippines is it. But clearly they're also striking some populist right wing core mm-hmm. core that is working in some places. So if you look across like that region, you have from South Korea, you have like a real right winger who just uh, got elected president or t- just took office as president, um, which could you know indicate some bumpier days ahead <laughs> between South and mm-hmm. North Korea. Um, you've got you know all the way on the other side uh, of the spectrum, you've got the military coup in Myanmar, which continues mm-hmm. to lead to kind of grinding oppression and violence in you know Malaysia and Indonesia, uh, other democracies. Um, that you know have been kind of stop and start. You see some warring trends building up um, of a shift in Indonesia towards potentially more autocratic politics or the military playing a more assertive role. Um, so it's just it's not good. I mean, yeah. like this. I think that we may be living through because we have like Biden's there and Trump's out here, and you know Macron beat Le Pen. You know, it's, it's easy to kind of feel like, well, it looks like we're dodging the big autocratic bullet, but like in a bunch of other places. Um, this trend that we're seeing everywhere, like if you look at Sri Lanka, that's part of the South Asia trend with Modi and the kind of ethno nationalism mm-hmm. there, and and then you know Southeast Asia, you've got these these corrupt nationalist far right types. Um, you know the <laughs> geopolitics is still like uh, in a bit of the spiral. You know, it's real confusing how you can just loot a country and then just rehabilitate your record. Maybe Hugh Hewitt will run like a Nixon grandkid over here. Yeah. Well, nice. I, it, 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 it makes you wonder, like the, 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 the pendulum swung hard against the Marcoses of the world around, you know, the 80s and 90s. And we're just in this phase where it's just swinging back in the direction. Like what people are looking for is, and again, this is a big part of my book. People are looking for like that, that sense of traditional identity. Yeah, and nostalgia. The, yeah. The strong man at least represents how I feel as a Filipino or as an Indian or as an American. Um, and I would argue that like those leaders don't deliver and they steal from you and they risk getting you into wars. But uh, it may be that we have to experience that for a little while longer before the pendulum swings back. Yeah. Uh, a couple more things before we get to Ben's interview. So the Reuters reported that last year, CIA Director Bill Burns told Brazilian officials that President Bolsonaro should stop undermining confidence in Brazil's elections uh, an electronic voting system ahead of the October elections. Um, now, I I too worry that if Bolsonaro loses, he will pull a Trump or a Trump plus, a Trump worse, uh, and refuse to accept the results. I think the world of Bill Burns, who's a career diplomat that Biden appointed to run the CIA, I think is one of his better picks in national security. Uh, but here's my question. Do you think, Ben, that the CIA is the right messenger to talk to Latin American leaders about the integrity of elections? Is that not leading with our chin? A little bit. No, I would not have sent the CIA director to do that. I mean, maybe I, Tony. I, I I watch this space because yeah, that this is the big test election year uh, wise. Bolsonaro versus Lula, 
And Bolsonaro, you know, by all polling data, it suggests he should lose. But, you know, he's a guy with the history in the Brazilian military who doesn't seem like he wants to step aside. But, yeah, like I I really the, – the Summit of the Americas is coming up here in uh, hmm. L.A. Cuba's not in, invited. In June. Well, yeah, and uh, their Latin America policy writ large seems to be – playing all the wrong greatest hits you know mm-hmm. like, like you mentioned the cia director like going down to warn about elections um a right message wrong messenger and a love bill burns i should say obviously um the, the cuba not getting invited to the summit of the americas like that's after so frustrating we brought them back in the fold new bomb years like what what is gonna be accomplished by that other than isolating the united states and pissing right? off everyone pissing else. off everybody else making the summit not about what you should be talking to them about which is like clean energy and migration but rather another fight about why cuba and venezuela and these other countries aren't even invited meanwhile like venezuela we keep acting like this is policy of recognizing another government is working when it's been moving in the wrong direction. Like, and I don't, from the Biden people, like I don't, I don't know what their Latin America policy is. Like, do you, could you like, I know. I, I mean, I do feel like there's a lot of fear. It's a lot that... of American politics. It's a lot of like tough on Cuba. Yep. Like, yep. you know, and then it, it's all American politics. And then like it's a lot of Florida politics, Florida politics. And then a lot of, or Bob Menendez politics. And then yes. a lot of like, this is, not our top priority. So, so, uh, so we're going to send somebody else. You know, well, and there were some reports that some U.S. official got dispatched to Venezuela to see if they could get them to increase oil output too. So, like, like you're right, it's sort of all over. The place. It, it's all of the yeah. Like, I think they need to put a framework over this thing. I, like, I get it. Like, you're you're got Ukraine, but it kind of ties in what I was saying earlier about like Ukraine overtaking things. Like, there's a lot of important things happening in the Americas, like in Mexico and. Migration, Central America. There's the, we've got some weird Bitcoin autocrats, and then we have a bunch of you know left wing governments that are not going to want to join us in the the Cuba fight. You got this existential struggle for democracy in Brazil. You know, like this is something that demands a bit more attention. I think. You know? uh, yeah, yeah. Our, our our Bitcoin president in El Salvador, President Bukele. Apparently, he's been so he tweeted like eight or nine times that he bought the dip, bought more Bitcoin as the price went down. I believe I saw someone sum up his investments in Bitcoin with El Salvadorian treasury funds are down about 30% yeah. overall. Yeah. So he's just pissing away money on uh, Bitcoin. So that's great. Yeah, it's not not where I'd want Bitcoin to put like, pension funds. Yeah. Me either. Me either. Uh, so you mentioned Mexico, uh, which brings us to Mark Esper, Trump's former <laughs> Secretary of Defense. He just wrote a book. Great. Uh, in this book, he discloses the following. One. Trump asked him multiple times if the U.S. could launch missiles into Mexico to take out the drug cartels and then somehow keep it secret. The quote was, uh, we could just shoot some Patriot missiles and take out the labs quietly. You know, your classic quiet missile attack. Uh, Not to be a nerd, but the Patriots are an uh, air-to-air system, ground-to-air system, excuse me. Um, Anyway, yeah, fire metal warehouse in Mexico. Good idea. Esper also said Trump wanted to shoot protesters during the George Floyd protests. And he says that Stephen Miller proposed sending 250,000 U.S. troops to the southern border and also suggested dipping ISIS leader uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi's head in pig's blood and parading it around to warn other terrorists. So good stuff. I mean, what I've been struck by, apart from the crude profiteering and grifting of Mark Esper, Mm -hmm. is that in these interviews and even in some of these book passages, it's always like, I was really surprised that this happened. And and, and you're like, did you... Everyone called him Jesper. 
Yeah, he just yeah. With did you not like know who you were working for? Like, we you were shocked to walk into the Oval Office and find that the president was actually Donald Trump. Um, the Mexico thing is 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 interesting to me because it's it's so insane and like the idea that like you're gonna bomb labs, uh, like to what end? Like, the, and then no one was gonna know about it. Well, the idea that they thought that any of this was gonna accomplish something, like the hundreds of thousands of troops at the border, like basically like going to war with Mexico because <laughs> um, that, that's what kind of this amounts to, right? Like yeah. completely militarized border and then you start bombing targets in the country with no legal basis, obviously, but put that aside because they don't worry about that. Um, this is what is on the table because these people want to come back to power and like this is their agenda. Mm-hmm. Like their agenda is like embalming the heads of terrorists and bombing neighboring countries and militarizing our borders, you know, like, and this is, what they want to do if they get back in the government. So like, let's not lose sight of the fact that we're not out of these woods yet. The book is called A Sacred Oath. Oh. We need a complete and total shutdown of these (laughs) self-righteous book titles until we can figure out what the hell is going on. The last few secretaries of defense include Duty Mm -hmm. by Bob Gates, Worthy Fights Fights. by Leon Panetta. That's a good one. A Sacred Oath by Mark Esper. All of these sound like- Lobbyists for weapons manufacturers. (laughs) All these sound like kind of- like 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 straight like back back in the days of straight to TV movies, Mm -hmm. you know, or um, or like a like a wannabe James Patterson kind of book, you know. Yeah, or like um, you know, sort of YA Christian fiction. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) you know, it's a a sacred oath. It's about uh, you know waiting for marriage or something like that. I will say that um, Ash Carter, um, inside the five sided box. Lessons from a Lifetime of Leadership in the Pentagon it may actually weirdly be the least self-regarding yeah, title. Yeah, I did course. interview him about yeah. that book yeah. uh, on this very show and uh, didn't read it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> last, last thing, um, I want to close with a new segment. Uh, we, we can come up with a better title, but I was thinking we might just call it like the Beat Sweetener round of applause. So for people who don't know, a Beat Sweetener is when a reporter writes a puff piece or just like a glowing profile about some newly powerful officials so they can gain access down the road. It's like, it's why the new chief of staff always, always gets, gets some yeah, sweet yeah. profile yeah. in every paper, right? You get your calls returns. Um, anyway, the Wall Street Journal went into this classic genre uh, and wrote an exclusive a couple days ago about how the Saudi government will allow some of the $2 billion check that they cut to Jared Kushner's new private equity fund to be invested in Israeli companies. Now, when I read this exclusive Nowhere mentioned in the story was the name Jamal Khashoggi, the journalist who was brutally murdered uh, by Saudi at Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's direction, or how Jared helped MBS avoid any accountability for this murder. So Ben, clap it up for the Wall Street Journal. That's a beat sweetener right there. That's good stuff. Yeah, I mean, you got to feel really good about basically writing public relations material for someone who's monetizing their government service to the tune of two billion dollars from corrupt Gulf autocrats who are basically buying a protection racket in Washington, uh-huh. D.C. through their association with not just Jared, but the Abraham Accords. There's no surprise that they'd be investing money in Israel. Like this whole thing was a business deal, not a peace deal. Mm-hmm. And the Saudis were always in on the deal. Like, did anybody really think that Bahrain and the UAE were these independent actors? <laughs> and and the idea that, you know, we're supposed to just kind of completely look the other way, that this person, Mohammed bin Salman, 
murdered and dismembered Jamal Khashoggi continues a pointless war in Yemen that's killing all all these people, continues to suppress opposition. And we're supposed to just like feel good about Jared's investment oh, the, portfolio? The, the idea that like Saudi investment in Israel is just, or Israeli companies is just sort of like de facto a good thing. Like what if it's an evil company? What if it's the Pegasus project? Like what if selling NSO groups, selling spyware? Well, they are. Right. That's a big part of the deal. It, every, and like the thing is, is that like, this is the asymmetry of all this, that, that, that it's so expected that Jared Kushner ran his whole government service as a grift, that the idea that he's getting literally billions of dollars from a deeply problematic government that had enormous interest before the U.S. government and will again um, if Donald Trump, Jared Kushner's father-in-law, is elected, and that they can just kind of pay in to the tune of billions of dollars, that that's not mentioned in the story. Never mind Jamal Khashoggi, but like the potential. Or what about the fact, again, that Jared Kushner walked out of the U.S. government having had access to the most sensitive set of covert operations and intelligence the U.S. government had, wouldn't the people that just paid him $2 billion like to know some of that information? I bet they would. I bet they would. Not in the glowing profiles in the Wall Street Journal. Well, now here's a twist for you. I reread the story today just to, you know, get myself acquainted, angry all over again. After we angrily tweeted about it, the story seems to have been updated Ooh. about three quarters of the way down to include Khashoggi's name in a little paragraph about what happened, Democratic concern about it, presumably Elizabeth Warren on the show. So- Clap it up for your tweets. Our tweets matter. Hey, wait a second. Now I feel better. Tweets matter. Tweets yeah. matter. Thanks for the update. That's all we got. Wall Street Journal. That's good. Yeah. So that was gross. I'm glad there's a business angle on, um, you know, kickbacks for for covering up a murder. Well, I get, here's the issue on this because it, Wall Street. It's interesting that this is a Wall Street Journal. There is a ton of money that runs through Saudi Arabia and the Emirates, and a ton of American businesses have are all tangled up there, right? And the Wall Street Journal. That's their audience, right? And so. You understand why they want to beat Sweden the Gulf, right? Because they'd like to, you know, they've written a bunch of stuff in the past that felt that way about the Saudis and the Emirates. But this is how it happens. This is how you kind of whitewash what happened to Jamal Khashoggi. It's like, well, there are these other interests. And over time, we're tired of writing about Jamal Khashoggi and some of our more influential readership just wants to move on and Mm -hmm. focus on the business angle. Yep. It's, uh, but, you know, that's how you end up with like uh, Prime Minister Kushner in the fifth Trump term or whatever. <laughs> no, I know. Yeah. Uh, before we go to your interview, I forgot that Don Jr. tweeted, I'm still trying to figure out the recent media outrage about my father possibly wanting to target Mexican drug cartel manufacturing facilities in Mexico. Is that supposed to be a bad thing? You're trying to figure out a lot yeah. of things, Don Jr., but yeah, yeah, firing missiles bad, into yeah. a sovereign country. It's supposed to be a bad thing. It's probably a bad thing. And by the way, I don't think you have the intel on every like fucking meth lab in Mexico. No, you know? no. Um, and, Highly unlikely. Yeah. I mean, if you saw, I saw Breaking Bad, I, I loved it. You could take out one, and I think they can figure out how to make it pop up. Yeah, but there might too. be just an innocent, you know, innocent-ish. Uh, well, you shouldn't do it. Teacher in the yeah, well, you shouldn't do it to begin with. Like, let's yeah. posit that it's an insane idea to begin with. There we go. Uh, okay, that's it for the news portion. Ranging set of topics Ranging. here. Uh, when we come back, we'll have Ben's interview with Wally Adiamo about sanctions and Ukraine and all the things that the U.S. government is doing to kick the shit out of Putin economically. So stick around for that. everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up! 
and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can live out your MasterChef dream when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Okay, I'm very pleased to be joined by the Deputy Secretary of the Treasury, Wally Adeyemo, who's uh, also, um, full disclosure, an old friend and colleague, or uh, is it old? I, I don't know. It feels, like it. it feels like it. Uh, while he was a deputy national security advisor for international economics in the Obama administration, uh, he was president of the Obama Foundation, uh, but now he is helping to run the largest economy in the world. So uh, thanks so much for joining us, Wally. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here with you, Ben. Um, so I, you know, this is a great opportunity to, to do kind of a deep dive on uh, Ukraine, and, and your piece of this is enormous uh, at Treasury. Um, and, and obviously the sanctions have been, you know, one of the principal tools of, of U.S. policy. I'm going to go into kind of where that's headed and what the secondary effects are. But just to start, I mean, how would you describe the kind of baseline impact of what you guys have done and, and what you're assessing as the impact on the Russian economy and, and, and beyond? So, Ben, I think the most impressive part about our sanctions have been the fact that it hasn't just been the U.S., but it's been the U.S. plus Europe plus a number of Asian countries. And I think that's led to a significant impact on the Russian economy. And um, we're, we have our own data, but their central bank governor, uh, once she testified in front of the Duma, made very clear that they're facing a significant recession because of our sanctions, probably the most significant recession since Russia defaulted on their debt over 20 years ago. Inflation is near 20%, which means the cost for goods and services in the economy is tremendous. And fundamentally, what it's done is it's put um, the Kremlin in a position where they have fewer resources to prop up their economy and fewer resources to also invest in their military industrialized complex. And our goal is going to be to retain the ability to continue to constrain the availability of resources for the Kremlin to do both of those things because we think that that will um, help us limit their ability to project power in the future, but also limit their ability to resupply their military as they're fighting the war in Ukraine. So, and just one more thing on the inputs, because I, I was struck in the central bank's governor's testimony um, in Russia that you mentioned, she acknowledging, you know, factories may have to shut down because they just can't get inputs. And a lot of these inputs to their economy are in their tech supply chain, which presumably is important to their capacity to sustain the you know, modernized military. Uh, how are you guys going to guard against their capacity to get those inputs from other places. You know, presumably we and the Europeans are on board with the sanctions regime. Is there, are you guys going to have to do some work with China and others to deny Russia from just kind of um, shopping around for those inputs? 
So I think it's a great question, something we thought about when we started to think through how we would design the architecture of both the sanctions and the export controls. And lots of the technology things that we prevented them from getting access to have been prevented through export controls. And what we decided to do is focus in on the most important technologies that were critical to building things like missiles or top-of-the-line computers or quantum computing. And the truth is much of that technology is either built here in the United States or by some of our Asian allies. So the Taiwanese, the South Koreans, the Japanese, bringing them into the alliance that implemented these sanctions was critical to our ability to deny them access to those top-of-the-line technologies. And the and China, one of the things China is investing in today is trying to upgrade their semiconductor industry because they don't have those technologies. So um, China is likely to, in some ways, provide Russia with access to some of the resources they're not getting from the West. Yeah. But there are things that China can't give them what they don't have, and they don't have these things. So the key for us is making sure that we maintain the alliance that extends beyond Europe to our Asian allies and partners as well, and ensuring that Russia, which has become really good at setting up front companies, can't use these front companies to purchase those things from unwitting suppliers. And that's a place where we're focused on increasingly. And, and you know, there was uh, some focus recently on like potential semiconductor shortages writ large. Uh, uh, people may not be following this, but you know, describe what you guys are trying to do with Congress right now to kind of backfill or develop more of a indigenous semiconductor industry. How, how does the war in Ukraine interact with that effort and where does that effort stand? Yeah, and I think um, right now the name that I'll call it is the Competes Act and it's because <laughs> it's going through many different names. But one of the things is that COVID-19 taught us was that supply chains were a place where we needed to invest heavily in this country, especially for the supply of high-end technology like semiconductors. You look at the cost of a car that went through the roof during the pandemic because we just didn't have enough semiconductors to put in new cars. So Congress has rightfully decided to design legislation that will create incentives for building up domestic production of semiconductors that will help us grow an industry that's going to be not only critical to our economy, but critical to the economies of our allies and partners. And I think what the war in Ukraine has taught us even more is about the importance of something that I think Secretary Yellen calls friendshoring, which is the idea of how do you build supply chains for critical minerals and other things that you need in our country that rely on countries that share your values, where you trust in contracts, where you know the supply will reliably get to your country because ultimately making a semiconductor requires a bunch of inputs. And those yeah. inputs come from around the world. And a lot of the inputs that people use in their economies were coming from Russia or Ukraine. You look at the cost of food now and the cost of energy, lots of that's being driven by Russia's decision to invade Ukraine. And it's forcing a number of countries to think through, how do we find alternative suppliers? Yeah, I mean, just one of many ripple effects from this war that people should watch. Um, it, you know, because uh, one of the things that brought this to light recently was just, you know, there's a semiconductor input into every anti-tank javelin <laughs> missile that we're providing the Ukrainians, and that's a lot. Um, so in terms of where you can turn the dial up, the obvious place is uh, European purchases of Russian gas. That's kind of the, through no fault of your own, kind of the the hole in the sanctions regime in that Europe needs the, that that gas. They're basically you know, sending hundreds of millions of euros or, you know, I guess it's payment in rubles uh, to the Russians um, every day. So the, 
the goal of you know damaging the Russian economy is working and choking off some revenue, but there's still this one big glaring revenue input to the Russian economy. The Europeans have set varying targets to kind of wean themselves off of gas. I mean, what is the potential um, to, to upgrade the sanctions regime by cutting off or slowing down the flow of gas? What's the timeline that, that you guys are thinking about? And then how do you mitigate the potential you know, recession impact or negative economic impact of, of Europe doing that? Yeah, and I'm happy to get to that, but I, I want to pick up on something you said about javelins and the need for semiconductors. And the truth is that the Russians also need semiconductors yeah. for their precision missiles. And they've used so many of their precision missiles today. And our goal now is to make sure that the semiconductors they need to rebuild their precision missiles to use in Ukraine around the world, they don't have access to. So yeah. I think a big piece for us is doing what you just talked about, which is cutting off their revenues. But with the money they have remaining, making sure they can't use that money to build up their military industrialized complex is the second real focus of sanctions and export controls. But you're right that um, their biggest source of revenue for Russia is commodities. Um, both energy and also other things that they mine from the ground. Um, we're in a totally different position than Europe, as you know. We're yeah. a net energy producer. But the Europeans have done a lot. Like you think about the fact that right away, Chancellor Schultz decides that they're going to cancel Nord Stream 2. Yeah. A few weeks ago, they decided that they're going to stop importing Russian coal, which is a big deal for Europe because they're very dependent on Russian coal. And they're working through a process of finding a way to cut off their dependence on Russian oil as quickly as possible and then Russian gas as well. Russia makes a lot more money off of oil than they do off of gas, but hmm. Europe is far more dependent yeah. on Russian gas, which I think is going to take them longer to wean themselves off of. Part of what we're doing is we're trying to help them by providing them with alternative suppliers. One is going to be the United States, trying to get them as much LNG as we can from the United States, but they're working closely with other countries around the world to try and get the LNG surprise that they need going forward. My expectation is that as soon as they can, they're going to make announcements around the idea of what they're going to do to wean themselves off of the oil in the same way they made an announcement with regard to coal. And the goal has got to be to make sure that as they wean themselves off of it, um, they find alternate, not only alternative supplies of gas and oil, but something that I know we both care about is we all invest in this clean energy transition. Because yeah. the thing we know is that the challenge, of course, is that you could do something where you reduce the amount of oil that you purchase from Russia, but it drives the price of oil up and yeah. Putin could make more money buying less of it. And that's exactly the opposite of what we want. What we realize that over time, the way that we prevent both Europe, but our country also from being dependent on what happens in Russia or in the Middle East is by moving to clean energy as soon as possible, not only because of the climate implications, but also because of the energy security implications for each one of our countries. So my sense right now is that over the course of the next several months, Europe is going to take a lot of actions to put themselves in a place where they can be more energy independent from Russia, but make a lot of investments in their economy, both to find alternative suppliers, but also um, to move towards a clean energy future. Yeah. I mean, because it seems like, you know, everybody's impulse is to to rush to take more stuff out of the ground. But as you point out, ultimately, that's not the long-term solution here, not just for the climate, but for, for Russia. Um, so getting into some of the other effects beyond sanctions, um, there's obviously, you look at Ukraine and, you know, it's completely decimated. Um, and and yet they're also still in a war. So you, you can't really move to 
you know, reconstruction of a country that is still being destroyed. How do you just introduce us to this challenge of how is the United States and our allies and the Ukrainians, how, how are they even thinking about the combination of how do you sustain a country and meet humanitarian needs in the midst of a war? And then and do you begin to think about reconstruction even though they're still in the midst of the war? It's a great question. And it's one that um, we're spending a lot of time on working closely with the Ukrainian government. And I think one of the things we um, fail to recognize, which I think is an important thing to remember, is that we have a Ukrainian government that has control of large swaths of Ukraine because of the bravery of the Ukrainian people, but also because of what we've done to support them. And I think the key for us is as long as we're going to keep providing them with military support. But one of the things the president called for in his latest supplemental proposal was $7.5 billion of budgetary support for five months for Ukraine. And he's also called on our G7 allies to provide commiserate support to Ukraine to help them get through this period where they're fighting Russia um, in the east and around their country and to help defeat Russia, but at the same time, to start thinking about what does it look like for us to reconstruct this economy. A few weeks ago, the Ukrainian finance minister came to to Washington. I had a chance to meet with him, and we pulled together a bunch of business leaders to give him a chance to talk to them about what he's doing with the Ukrainian economy and to start thinking about what rebuilding looks like, not just with public money, which is going to be critical to this. The United States, of course, is going to play a huge role as are our allies, as are institutions like the World Bank. But ultimately, what Ukraine needs is a functioning private sector and getting companies who have donated to the humanitarian effort to start thinking about what does it like look like for me to move my manufacturing from another country like Russia into Ukraine yeah. or to move my company there, something that he wants to get people thinking about because I think once they are able to end this war and end Russia's invasion, they need to be in a place where they can invest in rebuilding the economy. That's going to be costly, but it also prevents an, presents them an opportunity to attract foreign direct investment into the country and want to be helpful to them in that. One issue that I hear a bit from like European progressives too, it's kind of a obviously related but tangential point to the process you're describing is Ukrainian debt forgiveness. They have an enormous amount of debt. We in the past have kind of given aid in the form of loan guarantees. Is that the kind of thing that's on the table and what is the kind of scale of that challenge? I think that ultimately you're going to need to think through what it looks like for you to rethink Ukrainian debt. What we've done um, during the Russian invasion is instead of giving them loan guarantees as we've done previously, we've actually given them grants. Yeah. Because the reality is that you want to give them something that gives them the most flexibility and you don't want to build up their debt to GDP at a moment where they have less revenue coming in. So the United States committed to giving them grants. But I think what in talking to the finance minister, what he's made clear to me is that he'll take grants, he'll take loans, he'll take whatever is needed at the moment to keep the country going. And I think when the war is over, when the invasion is over, then we're going to have to think about what rebuilding looks like. And part of that shared sacrifice, I think, is going to be us thinking through what we do to potentially look at their debts and what can be forgiven and what can be extended in order to give Ukraine the ability to grow their economy going forward. Yeah, no, definitely put a pin in this. And and if they're pursuing EU membership, you know, a lot of this, I mean, the EU has mechanisms to, to provide support to poorer members, but not to completely destroyed uh, member states, but uh, they'll obviously have a big share of this. Um, I wanted to get it um, a couple other kind of knock-on effects of the war. Um, you mentioned earlier the wheat issue um, and the fact that, you know, they're 
you've seen food prices go up in a lot of countries in the Middle East and Africa that were dependent on Russian, Ukrainian uh, wheat in particular. Um, is this going to is this a resource question? How how can countries try to mitigate potential famine type conditions or massive inflationary pressure on food from places that are just not going to have the same inputs of, of Russian and Ukrainian wheat? Is that a resource question or are there other things that can be done? So I think the most important thing from my perspective is just to like make sure that we let everybody know what's causing this. And in talking to the finance minister from Ukraine, what he said is that they have the capacity to plant the wheat to grow the wheat. They want to export the wheat. The problem is that Russia is blocking the port, blocking their access to getting the food to the people who need it. So that's the first point. So that's one of many reasons we need this invasion to end because it is the fastest way to making sure that agriculture of all kinds can get back to the market. And you're right that this is creating challenges, not just in our country where you're seeing food prices go up and we're doing everything we can to bring down the cost, but real crises in countries that have less ability to mitigate it. You look at Egypt, which recently had to go to the IMF to get more support because they have less money to pay for bread. Um, And I think the most important thing from our perspective is that we want to do everything we can to mitigate the pain and suffering of people due to this war, not just in Ukraine, but in other regions as well. During um, recent meetings of central bank governors and finance ministers, Secretary Yellen brought people together to think through what can we do together, which includes additional money to not only help with the purchase of food for these countries, but also to try and improve supply. Because ultimately, if there's more demand, but there's less supply, prices are going to just keep going up. So a big piece of this is like helping countries who need to purchase, but also helping countries that can grow more get access to fertilizer. So they have the ability to grow more. And then trying to make sure that what happened during the beginning of the pandemic doesn't happen here, which is hoarding. And hoarding could be one of the worst things that happen in terms of countries seeing that there's a crisis coming and being unwilling to share goods, um, agricultural goods to other countries. So working hard within the G20 and the UN to do this, it's a major area of focus, not just for us at the Treasury Department, but clearly for the rest of the U.S. government, including the Department of Agriculture and USAID and the State Department is working not only with the G7, but throughout um, the G20 and throughout the UN to try and work with those countries that have excess supply and those that have demand to make sure that we're meeting it and to try. There's some countries that have huge storehouses of grain and trying to get them to sell that also is a big part of what we're going to attempt to do over the next several months. No, it all makes sense. And um, and I want to ask you about one other kind of knock on it more from the sanctions, which is there's been this huge focus on oligarchs and, you know, we're seizing yachts and we're trying to you know, cash out the yachts to to pay the Ukrainians and all all good. <laughs> and nobody feels that nobody's shedding a tear for these guys. Um, it does raise these bigger questions. You know, in the time that you were out of government, you know, there was this kind of building sense about the need to do something around the next between kleptocracy and oligarchy and and authoritarianism. And the Russian oligarchs were always kind of at the center of that murky universe, but. You saw in the U.S. Uh, at the very end of the Trump administration, Congress getting rid of beneficial ownership rules that allowed for kind of anonymous front companies. But, but in talking to the people who really dig into this, you know, seizing yachts is step one, but there's still this kind of world out there um, that, that people like Putin use to finance everything um, of offshore, you know, tax havens and and company, you know, like you alluded to earlier, front companies. And what is the, the current s- strategy of the U.S. government and capacity to really kind of m- in a more methodical way 
both find the wealth of people like these Russian oligarchs, you probably have it in 10 other names, and, and kind of think about what other tools might be needed to kind of begin to get at this flow of illicit finance that, that many autocrats and just generally bad guys around the world you know, prey upon. You're totally right that this is an issue that matters to not only Russia, Ukraine, but to our democracy and democracy in general. And I think that Russian oligarchs perfected the ability to hide their wealth, not so much from us, but from the Russian state and Russian taxes initially. Um, and I think that um, what we've done during the invasion of Ukraine is to take this as a chance to go after not only those individuals, but also their networks, because ultimately the thing that is supportive of these oligarchs and of um, President Putin and other kleptocrats like that is a network of facilitators. And trying to find the information about these facilitators, track them, go after them is critical to going after these kleptocrats. And what the what we've done is setting up this thing called the Repo Task Force, which has allowed us to go after these oligarchs. But more importantly, it's given us access to information we simply didn't have um, as readily in the past about where they're moving their money. Most of these oligarchs want their money to be in places where they can use them easily. Um, countries that have deep liquid pools of wealth. Many of those countries are like the United States, the UK, Switzerland. And our goal has been to create a task force that includes them in order to build a coalition that allows us to get access to that information and then use our various tools to go after their networks and the individuals. I think the... Um, what Congress did at the end of the Trump administration in, build, in passing the beneficial ownership legislation gave us the ability to do more domestically, which yeah. was critical because there were too many places in our country where people were able to hide wealth that um, created challenges for us. But I think what we've done with during this crisis has been using this as an opportunity to get other countries to step up their game in order to create better beneficial ownership rules in their country and then improve the nature of information sharing. Because what you'll do often if you're one of these wealthy oligarchs is you'll set up the front company in one country, open up the bank account in another country. By the time you're tracing them, you're going from country to country. It's hard to know where the trail ends. But by building out this repo task force that includes G7 countries plus, we put ourselves in a position where it's really hard for a wealthy person or a kleptocrat to be able to find a place to store their wealth that they want it to be in that we don't have access to information in. By doing that, we're better positioned to go after them. The key now is going to be making sure that the information exchange works well and that we're able to expand it beyond just Russian oligarchs to other kleptocrats who are using these financial systems to take wealth from their people and to hide it um, in, in our countries. And is there, is there a, a – I mean some of this wealth is, is – like you said, it had been stashed here. Some of it is kind of serviced, right? I mean New York, but in London in particular, notoriously provides all manner of services to oligarchs, right? Whether it's financial, legal, public relations. Is there anything to be done about that? <laughs> or is it, is it a reputational risk thing? Or could these people get actually caught in then the wet web of sanctions? Like, how do you look at, at how much our own economies have kind of developed these outgrowths that support kleptocracy? Yeah, I think you're right. And the term I use for these individuals are facilitators. Yeah. Um, and what we do to go after the facilitators. And I think maybe two weeks ago, um, we did a sanctions package that included what we call the network of supporters, which included these facilitators. And I think there's a lot we can do to go after those people who are facilitating this stuff explicitly. Yeah. The 
challenge we have is when it's implicit, when it's behind a front company or two. And I think what we need to look at is whether we need additional authorities to go after some of the facilitators that are less obvious than um, the person who is simply moving money from account to account for people. Those people we can go after. The key is finding them and identifying them. So the information exchange helps. But you're right that there's a lot going on in terms of corporate formation and things yeah. of that nature that are being helpful to them. And I think it's a place where we want to take additional action or look. We have tools. Some of the tools we can use to do that now, and we're looking to do that when it comes to Russia and oligarchs who are using certain trust companies or companies in foreign jurisdictions to do that. And we have tools to do that. But we will need help, I think, from Congress, and we need to think through what that legislation looks like. Yeah, well, all, all supportive of that here. Um, so just ending on a kind of personal note, uh, first of all, it's, for some of our listeners might be surprised at kind of how in this you are at Treasury. You know, people think of Treasury as like domestic economy. I mean, what, what share of your time do you find ends up getting de- dedicated to national security, foreign policy, and, and how has that kind of gone up <laughs> since the war in Ukraine started? So when I started, Secretary Yellen asked me to spend a um, great deal of my time on national security issues. Everything from the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States sits at Treasury to um, all the sanctions work that we do um, to a number of things we do with international relations. And I'd say in the beginning, I'd say anywhere from 30 to 40% of my time was devoted to the national security portfolio. Today, I'd say it's more than 50% of my time is spent working on national security issues with some days it taking all of my time. But Russia, Ukraine has become one of the primary responsibilities that I have thinking through not only what we do in the United States, but as you know, from working on these issues, a lot of time spent talking with our international counterparts, thinking through how we can coordinate. And I think the most important thing that the president asked us to do in November when we started to see Russian troops build up was to go out and have conversations with our allies and partners. And those conversations um, take time, but they're important because what we found is that the impact of our actions have been so much greater because we've done it not alone, but with all of our allies and partners. And what uh, what's a day like for the Deputy Treasury Secretary. <laughs> you know, like, uh, how varied are the topics? What's it like? It starts very similar to the day for the Deputy National Security Advisor. Yeah. <laughs> I used to start. I start out with um, intelligence in the morning and yeah. try and collect information. The difference is that I also have direct domestic um, responsibilities. A lot of time working on how do we improve the IRS? Yeah. How do we make sure that America's economy is the most competitive? But um, while I've been here, I've went out and I've talked to people about how we build more housing in America, how we invest in infrastructure, how we invest in jobs. And ultimately, I think of these as competitiveness issues. They're all national security issues because yeah. um, so um, a lot of the issues are varied in terms of because the economy in America is the biggest and the strongest in the world. But ultimately, um, lots of my time is spent on national security issues. Well, look, Wally, we're, we're glad to have you in there. Uh, I think people get a sense. They may not know your name, but they should because uh, <laughs> uh, you're doing really important work and you have a lot uh, of work ahead of you. So thanks so much for swinging by uh, Crooked World Headquarters here. Well, thanks for having me, Ben. It's always great to see you. And thanks for everything you're doing to help people better understand these issues. Thanks again, Wally uh, Adiyama, for joining the show. Who else are we thanking this week? Mark Esper. Mark Esper. Esper, Esper. Really dropping a, an epic book. Uh, um, anybody who heard this and pre-ordered that paperback, ooh, that's smash good. that button. Uh, um, not the Marcos family. No, not the um, Marcos family. Uh, not Keir Starmer if he has to resign for this stupid beer nonsense. Um, yeah, it's the most expensive curry he ever bought. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> Maybe uh, Lamy will take his place, though. I mean, you know, I, uh, I, 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 they just got into a place too where like Starmer was. And then they're on the ready. offense. Yeah, they're on the offense, so it's disappointing. I mean, I feel like these are dark topics, but I feel like I'm, I'm ready to just weather this turbulence. You know what I mean? Like long time to the midterms. Like yeah, you know, then I'm ready to weather that turbulence. I'm I'm just ready. Just prepare yourself. I'm, I'm just buckle up. Steal yourself, you know, world like, We got each other, and we'll get through this. <laughs> uh, and that's it for this week. Uh, talk to you guys next week. See ya. Positive the World is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our producer is Haley Muse. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to Saul Rubin for production support and to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, Milo Kim, and Amelia Montooth, who upload our episodes as videos at youtube.com slash crooked media. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that.